going to turn for our scripture reading to the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations, you'll find it just after the larger book of Jeremiah. The book of Lamentations, and we're turning to chapter 3. And my, what a similar experience Jeremiah had to the writer of the hymn we have just sung. Jeremiah saw awful trials and problems, and yet he was able to praise and worship the Lord in the midst of it. So we're turning here to Lamentations chapter 3. Just let me point out this book is written by Jeremiah. He had prophesied that Jerusalem would be conquered by the Babylonians, and it has happened. And there's great devastation all around. It's actually Hebrew poetry. Now, we can't see it in our English translation, but it's actually poetry. And it's an acrostic. In other words, you'll notice that in chapter 1, 2, 4, and 5, there are 22 verses because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. Not 26 like us in English, 22. So each verse begins with the next letter of the alphabet, Aleph, Beth, and so on, as they say in Hebrew. When you get to chapter 3, there are 66 verses. So in other words, the first three verses begin with the first letter of the alphabet, the next three with the next letter, uh, and so on. But let's read uh, part of this chapter. It's a long chapter, but we'll read from the beginning of chapter 3 of Lamentations. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me as he turned, he turneth his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He hath set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Also when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. He hath enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait and as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope has perished from the Lord, remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. 
The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of God. Amen. May the Lord bless this reading of his own infallible word for his own glory. The book of Lamentations, chapter 3, especially verses 21 to 24. Verse 23, we read the words, Great is thy faithfulness. That's our subject. Let us look to the Lord, please, in prayer. Father in heaven, We thank thee for being able to sing these hymns of Zion that point our thoughts toward thee. We ask thee as we come now to thy word that thou would open it up to us, help us to understand what Jeremiah was going through and what led him to this great note of testimony and praise and worship even in the midst of deep sorrow. So guide us now, we pray, in our Saviour's name. Amen. Great is thy faithfulness. That phrase is familiar, I'm sure, to every one of us here this morning. Maybe you even have it on a plaque or framed picture in your home. But have you grasped the full significance of those words? Have you? Do you know what Jeremiah truly meant when he uttered that phrase? You say, well, of course I do. Great is thy faithfulness. That's something when we sing, when everything's going well, and and we're healthy, and we're prosperous, and God has blessed us with so many good things. We just want to say, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, when all's going well. No. No. That is not the context to this phrase. Everything was going wrong. Everything was going wrong. Jeremiah was going through an experience that he saw unimaginable death and devastation and destruction, and he was in utter despair at what he saw in his land and personally all around him. So we need to understand the context. The context. That's why we read the first verses in the chapter. What's the context? Well, the book is called in our Bible, in the English translation, we use lamentations, a lament. That's a dirge. It's uh, expressing deep sorrow, deep grief. That's what we call a lament. Now, the Hebrews, when they come to this book, that's not the name they give to it. The name they give it to it is in verse 1 of chapter 1. You'll see it there in chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 1. The word, alas, alas. You say, that's a strange name for a book. Well, that's what it is. How? How? It's there. It actually means alas. How? You see it there. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4. That's what they call the book. How? How, Lord, have you allowed this to happen? It's often used, alas, this is awful. This is is terrible. Jeremiah is in a state of shock. For these poems that he writes under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, 
They describe the horrors surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem when the Babylonians came and cruelly butchered people until the blood ran in the streets. They carried people that you've read of, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Ezekiel, away to Babylon. And the town is in ruins. It was so bad that mothers ate their own children, we're told in Scripture. And Jeremiah sits and he looks over the city that he loved. And he sees it's just the very poor people left scavenging for food. He sees the site where the glorious temple once stood, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world to which people would travel for hundreds of miles to view that magnificent edifice built. And it lies in absolute ruins. Can you just try and imagine? Alas, alas, how could this happen to the city I love? How could this happen to this country? Of course, do you never feel like that sometimes? We ought to spiritually. How I born in Belfast. How the city in my lifetime, alas, how it has been devastated morally, socially, spiritually. May we ought to cry out, alas. But also, Jeremiah not only is broken and hurting because of the national disaster, but personally, personally. If you just cast your eye over the chapter very quickly, look in verse 1. I am the man that has seen affliction. See that? I've been brought into darkness, verse 2. Look at verse 4. My flesh, my skin hath he made old. If you go down to verse 15, now scan them later when you have time, read them again. He hath filled me with butter, bitterness. He says, I'm full of bitterness. It's as if my teeth have been broken. Now, they haven't literally, this is poetry. But he's describing his feelings, like a sword going into his reins. That means his kidneys. He feels, I, I, I've just, I personally, alas, how could God allow this to happen to me? And by the way, look at verse 1 again. By the rod of his wrath. Verse 2, God brought me into darkness. Verse 3, surely against me is he, 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 God, God, he. You go down the chapter later. When bad things happen, it's one thing to say, oh, Satan did this. That's not for us as believers. What adds to the horror is this. Jeremiah recognizes, as we ought to recognize, God did this. God did this. God directed the Babylonians to come. God brought, not for us when terrible things happen, God wasn't there. God is right in the midst of what happens. God is right there in the midst. I know in a congregation like this, some of you are going through times of deep darkness and despair. I would say this, though. Was it as bad? Is your experience as bad as Jeremiah's was? But it adds to it when you realize God is in control. God has brought this into my experience. 
So that's the context. And Jeremiah actually wept until he could weep no more. Do you know that Jeremiah actually prayed a very strange prayer? Do you know what one of the prayers he prayed? You'll read it in the book of Jeremiah. Lord, give me more tears. Because his eyes, he was cried out. He couldn't cry anymore. But he said, Lord, enable me to cry more. That's the context where he said those great words, great is thy faithfulness. Then we need to clarify what he meant. What does this word faithfulness mean? Well, it comes from a word that you use. Maybe you didn't realize you were speaking Hebrew, but there's nobody here who hasn't used the word amen. Amen. Faithfulness is from the same Hebrew term amen. It's actually used over in 2 Kings 18 and verse 16, pillars, pillars of the temple. Now, you say, how could amen be pillars? Well, the root meaning of the word is firm, stable, steadfast, unmovable, dependable. So the pillars of the temple were dependable, they were firm, they were stable. And the word became used at the end of prayers. The Lord Jesus Christ, although the New Testament in Greek, but he spoke Hebrew also, Aramaic, and often in a very important statement, he would begin it with, Amen, Amen, faithful, faithful. We know it, verily, verily, I say unto you. So can you see the meaning of the term here? Jeremiah, in the context of such utter despair, he cries out, Oh God, great is your dependability, your reliability, your faithfulness. You're utterly reliable. Verse 21 is tremendous because up to that time you have all this sorrow, devastation, his trials, his heartaches. God has done this to me. God has brought me low. God has allowed these things in my life. God, And then in verse 21, I recall the mind. See, believer, we have to use our minds. Christianity is not just a feeling. God works through the mind. You're to think. Be still and know that I am God. And so he consciously, by an act of his will, brings his thoughts to who God is. So important. I can't answer why terrible things happen to some believers. I do know this. Some believers seem to go through a, a whole plethora of extreme trials in their life. And I can't explain why. But I do know this. Nothing happens without God willing it to happen. And nothing happens to the Christians without God willing it to happen before it happens and without God willing it to happen in the way that it happens. That's what we mean by God's sovereignty. And in the midst of a horrifying situation, a believer by God's grace and the Spirit's help should be able to say, Lord, even in the midst of this trial, I don't understand why, but great is your faithfulness. That's what Jeremiah is doing here. You see, we need to focus our mind upon who God is. 
We need a grasp of good theology. And I don't mean to take a full course. What I mean is theology, teaching who God is, doctrine, the word, the word, who God is. You see, we're not to live by feeling. We live by fact. And then we put our faith in that fact and then feeling. You see, so often we want a feeling in the midst of trial. Oh, I wish I had peace. I wish I had joy. I wish I had this feeling. But it starts with fact. Feelings go and feelings go and come and go and they're deceiving. You get the fact who God is. God is in control. I'm under his care. He loves me. And therefore he knows what I'm going through. And I can rest in him. That's the fact. You focus your attention upon him. The fact. The facts first. You put your faith in that. Lord, I believe it. It's dark. I can't see your face, but I know your face is toward me in this darkness. Because, Lord, you've said in your book, you'll never leave me. Lord, I'm believing that. That's the, the fact. Then the faith. Then the feeling. Then comes the peace and the joy. It's like a pilot. You know, the pilot up on the plane, they say that they must, one of the first lessons, keep your eye on the instruments. Don't rely on how high you think you are or direction you think you're. Trust the instruments. You see, clarify the term when you're in trials. Jeremiah was saying this, Lord, this is heartbreaking. But Lord, great is your faithfulness. I'm depending upon you for who you are. Clarify the term. It's interesting. Notice the companions to God's faithfulness here in verse 22. The companions of God's faithfulness, there's two of them listed. Look what he says in verse 22. It is of the Lord's mercies. Mercies. Notice it's plural. Sometimes this is translated in the Old Testament, loving kindnesses. Loving kindnesses. You'll read in the Psalms, it's the same term. Mercies. Now, it means a lot more than simple kindness. You know, somebody does you a good turn, you say, oh, that was kind. And we seek to be kind to everybody. No, it's more than that. Now, God sends rain upon everybody, the just and the unjust. There's God's common grace, but it's not talking about this is a special kindness, a special mercy, a special love that only those who have come to trust Christ as Savior experience. Now, in one sense, God is good to everyone in this world. He gives us breath. He gives us life. Gives us this beautiful creation. But this is a word restricted to God's people. It's actually covenant love. Sometimes it's translated covenant mercy. Now, what's a covenant? A covenant is a solemn binding agreement. Sometimes men would enter into an agreement. Sometimes there was dispute over something. So they made a solemn binding promise. You remember David and Jonathan? You'll read about this over in 1 Samuel 18 and, for instance, verse 3 and other places. David and Jonathan entered into what they called the Lord's oath. They swore a solemn oath to each other before the Lord. They said, by the Lord's name, we're swearing to stand by each other. And Jonathan, the king's son, gave David his own garment, gave him his own sword. What was he doing? 
David, I'm in covenant with you. I will stand by you. When you're in trouble, I'll be with you. I will provide everything you need. I will protect you when you're in danger. Well, when two men in a covenant like that help the other, it's called mercies, loving kindnesses. What Jeremiah is saying is, in the midst of my tragedy and sorrow, oh God, I know you're my covenant God. Great is your faithfulness. And you're, you're faithful in your mercies to me. You're my God. I'm your child. You will protect me. You will provide for everything I need. How do we know we're in covenant? Because Hebrews 13, it's ratified by the blood of the everlasting covenant. When you trust Christ, you're saved by the precious blood of Christ. And this morning, and when you're in a trial, you're in a covenant with God, and God will always be dependable to act toward you in mercy. Even when it doesn't seem like it, even when you say, why, Lord, did you allow this? He'll act to you in mercy, because he's in covenant. Then there's another one here. Look at this. Compassions in verse 22. Do you know how that word is used in the Old Testament? For a mother's love for a newborn baby. A mother's love for a newborn baby. Now, it is very, very unusual, extremely unusual for a mother to reject her newborn baby. It happens, sadly, in this world. You'll read about it sometimes. In fact, in Isaiah, God said, a mother may leave her child, but I'll never leave you. I think of Isaiah 66 and 13, where God said to Israel, like as a mother comforteth her children, so will I comfort you. It's this love for a mother, for a newborn child. In other words, the Lord will keep on loving you. He's faithful. Great is thy faithfulness to you in his mercy and in his compassionate love. There's something about our sinful human nature that even after we're saved, we sometimes have the idea, if only I prayed more, if only I did more, if only I was more faithful, then God would love me more. What a heresy. What an awful thought. God cannot love you any more than he loves you at this moment because you're loved with an everlasting love. You're loved with an everlasting love. I remember preaching many years ago in the church and I was speaking from Malachi and God's steadfast love. And I said in the message, there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you anymore. And then I said, and think about this, Christian. You may at first disagree but if you're truly saved, I'm only talking about true believers now, not professors, and there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you any less. A, a lady I knew well, a young lady said to me a couple of days later, you know, Mr. Johnson, when you said that, I didn't hear anything more. They said the rest of the sermon. I kept saying, that couldn't be right. What if I don't live right? What if I sin? Well, I went on to explain, oh yes, your life can bring honor or dishonor to the Lord and how you live, but even when he has to chasten you, whom he loveth, he chasteneth. And I told about Mark Guy Pierce, a preacher many years ago. He was preparing the sermon and he was minding his daughter and young, younger son. And he heard his daughter say to her young brother, you had better be good or daddy won't love you anymore. 
So he stopped the sermon preparation, but then he says, now look, dear, that's not right. Oh, but daddy, if he's naughty, you'll not, oh, I will always love him. When he's good, I love him with a love that brings me joy. When he's naughty, I love him with a love that brings me sorrow. But I'll always love him. God loves us. I have no time to turn to, but you read John 17, verse 23 later. It's absolutely amazing because Christ at this very moment is praying in heaven for every believer here. You know what he's praying? Father, that the world may know that thou hast loved those believers in Hillsborough, them as thou hast loved me. Will God the Father continue to love God the Son? Of course. Well, we're in Christ. You see, when you're a believer, you're in Christ. You're in Christ. Now, that lady a few years later had a horrific accident. Horrific. Can't remember how many days, but it was a long time she lay in intensive care. I remember the first time she was able to talk coherently. I remember saying, Mr. Johnson, remember those years ago you preached about the love of God that never changes? Nothing we can do or cause us to love God, to love, cause God to love us any more or less. You know, when I became awake after this coma, as the thought has been in my mind, of course the Lord put it there, not me. That's what Jeremiah is saying in the midst of the sorrow. Lord, I can't understand why this is happening. But Lord, great is your merciful, compassionate, loving faithfulness to me. I love the story of C.H. Spurgeon. He visited a farmer in his church and he noticed on top of the barn, you know, a weather vane. I'm sure you all know what that is. Maybe the very young ones. You know, it spins with the wind and sometimes it may be a rooster or whatever. And he read the words on it, the farmer had put God as love. And Spurgeon with a twinkle in his eye said, oh, I see you've put God as love in your weather vane. I suppose you mean God's love changes like the wind. The farmer said, now, pastor, you know I don't mean that. I put that text on it because no matter what way the wind is blowing, God is love. God is love. Look here at the confidence this faithfulness brings. When you realize God is faithful, look at the confidence it brings. I ought to say, by the way, the very tragedy of the nation gave Jeremiah hope and confidence. You say, hi. Because in Leviticus 26, I was reading it just this week, reading through the Bible, God said if his people forsook his Sabbath, he would carry them away captive to a strange country and then bring them back. And Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied they would go into captivity for 70 years. So God was bringing the judgment as he had promised. But the rest of the promise was he would bring the people back. <laughs> So he had hope. But look at how he has hope. But look at verse 21 and 24. You see the word hope. I recall the mind. When you think of who God is, then you hope. By the way, hope doesn't mean hope so. Hope for the best. It's a word that means absolute confidence. Absolute confidence. And look at verse 24. You have it there too. Sorry, on down. Yes, the Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope. He had absolute hope and confidence. What's he confident about? Verse 24, the Lord is my portion. Now, he doesn't mean by portion. We'd say there's an apple tart or whatever. You say, could I have a portion of that? 
That's not what it means. The portion is a word that's used, especially in the Old Testament, of an inheritance. The Levites didn't get any land, but the Lord was their inheritance. In other words, it's what belongs to them. What Jeremiah is saying, the Lord himself is all I need. He's my inheritance. Think of the New Testament. Paul put it this way, Ephesians 1 verse 3. When you come and trust Christ as your Savior, you begin to learn this. When you were saved, so many things happened to you that you don't realize. And we read there that God hath already, it's already yours, blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Believer, you already have a great inheritance. Christ, it's in him. In him. He is your inheritance. The Lord is your inheritance. And when you have the Lord, you have everything. Remember many years ago, one Christmas story, well, for everybody, but for the children especially, I got little boxes, you know, with Christmas paper, and I brought them out, and it said on it, peace, joy, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. A lot of these, those are the blessings. Now, how do you get them? How do you get joy and satisfaction? Well, I took them all off and put them in a big box. It had Christmas paper. Lifted it up and I said, they're all in the box. And then I turned the box around. The Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you had the box, they're all, when you have Christ, you have all you need. You see, Christian, you already have joy, peace. Why? Because Christ said, my peace I give unto you. My joy I give unto you. Christ has made unto his wisdom. Christ has made unto his righteousness. Say, well, I'm not enjoying my joy. Uh, That's a different matter. You have to appropriate these. But you see, they're your inheritance. Don't think of joy and peace as if it's some commodity the Lord. It is the Lord. You have Christ. Christ is your joy. Christ is your peace. That's what we mean. The Lord is my... What what Jeremiah is saying, the Lord's everything, everything to me. And then he says in verse 25, look what he says here. The Lord is good. This is the confidence when he thinks, great is thy faithfulness, Lord. Ah, he's everything I need no matter how dark the situation. I already have everything I need, for I have the Lord. And not only that, he's always good. The Lord is good. Can you say that? I say, well, I don't feel like saying the Lord is good. You see, you're walking by sight, not by faith. Walk by faith in his character. Recall to mind And of course, how we're always assured of God's love is when we look at Calvary. And if you run your eye back to verse 12 a moment, always look for illustrations of Christ. Just look at verse 12 there. God hath bent his bow and set me as a mark. See, a mark for his arrow. I can see Christ illustrated there. Oh, I know Jeremiah is talking about himself. He feels as if God has taken the arrow of judgment and You see, arrow in Scripture is often a symbol of judgment. Remember Ahab? The archer struck a bow adventure, didn't aim, and that arrow went all the way and killed Ahab in the chariot. It speaks of God's judgment. Psalm 7, God hath bent his bow, made it ready against the wicked. 
And I see in that verse an illustration of our Savior, his goodness. How? Because I'm a sinner by nature and by practice. And I deserve God's arrow of judgment. That's fair. That's just. God is our righteous judge. He must punish sin because he's holy and righteous and good. He's so good as a judge. Sin must be paid for. And the arrow is pointing at me. But thank God at Calvary, it's as if the Lord Jesus Christ stepped into my place. And the Lord Jesus Christ willingly, as it were, said to God as the judge of all, yes, Ron Johnson deserves eternal hell, but I will take that arrow for him. Set me as a mark. Can you say that this morning, believer? Do you know that Christ has borne your eternal hell? That's what salvation is. Realizing that Christ has died for you, the Lord is good. Can you say in the midst of trial and tragedy, great is thy faithfulness. I read an article some years ago. It was from a magazine called Moody Monthly. It was way back in 1991. And it was to do with a Marshall and Susan Shelley. Marshall worked in Christian work. They had two children that died within four months of each other. Mandy had been born a few years before, severe, severe disabilities that necessitated constant care and continual going back and forward to hospital. Very, very traumatic. But then Susan was expecting another child. The doctor said, have an abortion. The child did not live. They said, no. The day they describe in the article, the baby boy was born, set the baby boy on Susan's chest, and then the husband came in and passed her. But a minute, child began to turn blue. Two minutes, gone. They wept together in the article that said they prayed. Each one hugged the child. Tears were shed. The nurses standing around said, Did you choose a name for your son? Oh, yes, Toby. Oh, that's a lovely name. Yes, it's short for Tobiah. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. Great testimony. In the article, Marshall went on to write that sometimes people who didn't know the Lord would come and say, how can you say God is good? How can you say that? How could God, if he's good, create your son to live for just two minutes? Marshall would look at them and say, he didn't. He didn't. He created him to live for eternity. You think about that. He created him to live for eternity. See, we need to look at who God is, to look at the facts. The Lord is good. Can you say that this morning? Just one other illustration. There was a preacher actually preached in Belfast. Derek Thomas went to the States. There was another minister, a good friend of mine, was telling me, watched him in a video. He's a new church just a couple of years ago. And he said this, and I can't repeat it exactly the way he said it, but he said one morning, it's been great to come to this church and meet you all, and I love it, and I really appreciate it when you come and say to me, 
you know, so-and-so in our family that cancer or whatever, and they're in remission, isn't God good? Or, you know, my child, we're praying about the exams, and they did very well in their marks. Isn't God good? And he said, I appreciate you telling me these things, and keep on doing it, but there's just one thing I would like to say, and it's this. There's something troubles me a bit. When you come and say, so-and-so, they've got better, isn't God good? Listen, God is always good. God is always good. God is always merciful, compassionate, loving in his faithfulness to believers, even though we can't understand it. Now, if you're not saved this morning, you can't say that. You need to come. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. But as we look away to Calvary, we can testify this morning, and God gives grace to his people, even in the midst of trial, when they focus upon the cross work of Christ and realize what they have in him, to be able to say, God is good. Three hundred 